Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, church. Wonderful to see all of you and hear you singing. Really enjoyed the kids, especially today. Uh, Parents, if you've got children you'd like to go to Gospel Project, you can take them out now to the patio and somebody will help you get them where they need to go. Um, Everybody else will be in Daniel today as Randy prayed, so turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, If you're new, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been working our way through the book of Daniel, and I'm excited to uh, be together in the ninth chapter this morning. After a one-week pause in our Above All series, we are resuming today in Daniel 9. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seats in front of you, we've gotten those Bibles back uh, put in the seats, and so we're on page 435 in those Bibles. Incidentally, uh, last Sunday was sure uh, a special time for, for many reasons. Uh, one of those was there were about 15 homes that had uh, internationals over for the weekend, so thank you for doing that. That's a real gift that we have as a church, the opportunity to bless people from all over the world. So thank you for doing that. And you might be interested to know that there were more people here last week than two years ago on Easter Sunday. So we seem to be emerging out of the, uh, the death of the pandemic, and God is just blessing tremendously, bringing more and more people. So that's mostly due to you. So thank you for your uh, encouragement to invite people and bring them along. God's doing a lot of great things. Uh, now, before we turn our attention to Daniel 9, Would you recall with me just for a moment what we talked about last week, last Sunday on Easter? We looked at Romans chapter 8 and considered the significance of Jesus' resurrection as it relates to our sufferings. Suffering is everywhere. And so both the physical world and Christians, we learned, groan for Jesus to return and to consummate his once-for-all kingdom. On that day, when the king returns, all our suffering will cease forever. Looking forward to that, aren't you? Today, though, our present sufferings have an important function. They they keep our ears tuned to the message of God's grace. That God has given us present grace for today, and we are assured of future grace in which that work will be finished. And our confidence that that day is coming is bound up in two things. One, Jesus already came, and so we know he'll come again. And two, we've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit groans within us for Christ to come back. The application I gave last Sunday was that we are to wait well, that God's redemptive purposes for us will be accomplished in his time. And God's time frame is elongated, often long much long, much longer than we would want it to be. But God never frets, nor is he hurried. God stretched out, multi-phased approach to fulfilling his purposes, though, is not an invention of Romans chapter 8. It's not as though Paul said, well, Jesus came and died and rose again, and he's going to come again someday, but we got to come up with some scheme to which we could make sense of that. And so let's talk about groaning between the first and second coming of Christ and, and come up with a new idea. It's not as though that was an invention in Romans 8. No, it's all throughout the Bible. The Bible consistently discloses 
that what God is doing will take time and that it's unfolding in multiple layers of fulfillment. Our responsibility is to wait well, even while that waiting requires suffering. And the providence of God, I did not do this on purpose, but Daniel 9 is going to assist us on that exact same theme that we considered last week. In fact, Daniel 9 has a way of weaving the entire Bible together, such that while we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises, we wait with confidence. God's timetable for completing this plan that will be finalized when Christ returns is quite different than what Daniel expected. And it may be different than what we expect as well. Now much of Daniel 9 is a, is a prayer. And we shouldn't be surprised to find Daniel praying. We know at this point in the book he was a man committed to prayer, devoted to prayer. But what prompted that prayer in Daniel 9 is different than anything that's come before it. So if you would look at the first two verses with me. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ashurus by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years. So the passage starts by dating the text or the event to the year 539 B.C. And notice that Daniel was having his quiet time. Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. He was meditating on what it said. Church, the importance of regular Bible reading can't be overemphasized. This book is the truth. It is God's very Word given not merely that we would learn facts, but that we would know God more. And while certainly it's not the case that every time you open the Bible, it'll feel life-changing and you'll get warm fuzzies, every moment of, of reading and thinking and praying and considering the weight of what God says and talking about it with other people, every one of those moments is a moment well spent and it will bear fruit over the course of your life. Daniel was simply doing the same thing we do. He opened his Bible. He was asking God to speak. He was chewing on its truths. And then something in particular in Jeremiah leapt off the page. What Daniel saw was the length of time Jeremiah prophesied the exiles would be in Babylon. Remember, Daniel and his kinsmen have been in, forced out of Jerusalem forced to live in Babylon for decades, and they longed to return home. And what Daniel would have read, if you're taking notes, would have included Jeremiah 25, verse 11, and Jeremiah 29, verse 10, both of which prophesied ahead of time that God's people would be in Babylon for 70 years. Now, if Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. in the first wave of exile, and we know what year Daniel 9 took place in, then we can date this to about 66 years. And so Daniel, again, reading Jeremiah, 
comes across these two passages. He knows it's been 66 years. And how his heart would have soared as he realized maybe the time in Babylon is drawing to a close. Maybe we can finally go home. Maybe God's people can be back in God's place under God's blessings. Daniel's reaction to that, to what he saw, was prayer. Now before we read the prayer, would you consider with me just for a moment the fact that that was his response? When Daniel read God's word, seeing what God's promised, his instinct was to go to God in prayer, asking God to do that which he promised he would do. Daniel understood that the providence of God and the prayers of God's people co-mingle. Knowing what God promises does not promote spiritual apathy, but rather expectant prayer. Friend, if you're like me and one of the things that you just consistently feel like you could grow in is prayer, if you find yourself wondering what to pray, well, follow Daniel's example. Pray for the promises of the Bible to be kept by the God of the Bible. That's what Daniel did. Now, this prayer we're about to read is the longest prayer in the book of Daniel, and yet it includes so much beauty, so much power. And so, let's engage in it together, starting in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. These were uh, outward indicators of inward repentance. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord and made my confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to the kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands in which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. But to the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servant, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we sinned against him. He has confirmed with words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing us a great calamity. He's talking about living all these years in Babylon. For under the whole heaven there has not been anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities, gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, 
The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem your holy hill because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O Lord our God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes, see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your name's sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is one of the most moving prayers in all of the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. I'd encourage you later today to get around the dinner table and with family or friends or invite a roommate to join you or a church member. Read it closely, carefully, slowly, and reflect on it together. But for now, let me offer just a brief overview. This prayer consists of two parts. The longest part is confession. The second is petition. Let's consider them in that order. First, confession. When you hear the word confession, what comes to mind? Probably, for most of us, what comes to mind is the idea of admitting our sins to God. That is confession. And yet, as this prayer shows us, confession moves along two lines. There's two kinds of confession. There's the confession of sin, but there's also the the declaration or the confession of who God is and what God has done. And in this prayer, Daniel does both. For example, in verse 2, he begins by declaring, God, you are great and awesome, you keep covenant, and you are a God of steadfast love. That is, he declares to God who God is. Now, it's not as though God forgot, but Daniel needed the reminder. And he's going to ask something from God. And so he's declaring who God is. And yet in the very next verse, he turns to a declaration of the people's disobedience. And so that dual pattern of confessing sin and declaring who God is weaves through the whole prayer. Church, if either of those are missing from your prayers, learn from Daniel. To both confess God's perfections and our own imperfections. And that contrast of God's righteousness and our own unrighteousness is the defining characteristic of this prayer. Often our thoughts of ourselves are far too high, while our thoughts of God are far too low. And that disordering, that wrong way of thinking must be corrected. 
It must be corrected continually because we slip back into it over and over and over. And one of the key ways that happens is prayer. Prayer reorders our thoughts by grounding us back in what's actually true. And so, beloved, hear who God is just from this prayer. God is great and awesome. God is faithful to his promises. God is righteous. He rightly punishes sin. And yet he's forgiving too. God is merciful. He speaks to people and rescues them with both mercy and might. This is our God. And yet we so often disobey. The people in Daniel's day fell into all sorts of wickedness. And this prayer, if you read it closely, especially emphasizes the Jews' failure to live under the preaching of the prophets. Verse 10 put it this way, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. In a nutshell, that's why they had spent roughly 70 years in exile. Church, the temptation remains today. It's present right now in this room for us to hear God's Word and yet for it to pass through one ear and right out the other, for us to disregard what God says. All of the sins we find ourselves ensnared in are connected to our failure to take God at His Word and to live under what He has said. When we choose to live out our own word instead of God's, then we're always walking away from that which is best for us and into that which will lead to discipline. Because God expects, God demands obedience. He speaks, we listen. He commands, we obey. And we don't pick and choose what God has said we are expected to through His grace and power to follow. One of the most important roles we have in each other's lives as brothers and sisters in Christ is to encourage each other ongoingly to listen to what God says and to obey and to hold each other accountable to be good hearers and doers. Daniel, as he saw his people, recognized they had not done that. And so on behalf of the nation, he confessed. Now, the second part of the prayer is a petition. Specifically, if you let your eyes glance back over 16 through 19, this is where Daniel asked God to bring exile to a close. He asked God to turn from his anger, his righteous anger, and instead to give mercy. I love verse 18. Verse 18 indicates that this request is not because the people were righteous. In other words, they didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But it was because of God's great mercy. Friends, that's always true. If we fall out of regular functioning harmony in our relationship with God, how is it that we find our way back? Well, it's never by our own behavior. It's always 
by God's mercy. This is what makes the Christianity, the gospel, so glorious. Is that we have a God who, when we offend Him, He is willing to forgive and to enable us to come back and start fresh. Amen? If you need to confess today, I want to encourage you to do it. Before your hiney gets off the chair, get back right with God. Not by declaring in some fresh way that this week is going to be different because I'm going to try harder. But by giving up and casting yourself again on His mercy. That's a prayer He loves to answer. Forgiveness from God makes much of God. And that's really the pinnacle of this prayer. Maybe you caught how toward the the end, Daniel's praying, God, do this. Send us back out of exile for your name's sake. Friends, God is ultimately committed to that which is best, that which is most glorious, and that is himself. So God, when he blesses us, brings himself glory, and that is ultimately glorious for him and really good for us. Now, the next paragraph, verses 20 to 23, we will find that Daniel's prayer was interrupted by the answer to the prayer. Wouldn't that be cool? And you're praying, and then God says, okay, enough. Here's the answer. That is quite literally what happened to Daniel. Sometimes the Lord delays answers to our prayers for a long, long, long time. But sometimes there's a quick turnaround. And in Daniel's case, he's not even finished. And God chose in this very unique moment in history to send an angel to give him a message. Now, the message we're going to get to is um, complex. Use that word. But the answer was given in order that Daniel would have insight and understanding. So whatever the, prayer mean, whatever the answer to the prayer means, it must mean that God intended it to give us insight and understanding. And so we're going to slog through some mud together, but we're going to get through that in order to arrive at a place of fresh understanding. So what follows in verses 24 to 27 make up the answer to the prayer. And admittedly, these are, these are challenging verses. I think they're the most difficult verses in all of Daniel. So let's read them. Verse 24. This is the angel answering the prayer. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the goings out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with the squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. 
Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he will make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, that certainly clears it up. This is a hard paragraph. Now, admittedly, some of the finer details of this paragraph are obscure, and there is not broad, universal agreement across Christianity about what some of the very fine points of this prophecy point to. But the dominant point is incredibly obvious. And that's what I want us to focus on together. Sure, it requires some hard work to understand. But if we climb up this mountain of interpretation together, then I think you'll find the view from the top is incredible. Many of the ditches people fall into trying to interpret this passage are caused by treating apocalyptic literature as something other than what it is. You may have heard this saying, uh, if you, you can put lipstick on a pig. Well, the defining characteristic of this kind of writing in the Bible is its use of symbolism. In apocalyptic vision, truth is conveyed largely through symbols. And so when we read it, we shouldn't be looking for literal fulfillment. We should be looking for symbolically what does it mean, and that's what's going to be fulfilled. For example, You'll see there at the very beginning of the prayer, the answer to the prayer, 70 weeks are decreed. Now, 70 weeks, if taken literally, refers to just under 18 months. But there is absolutely no reason to interpret this passage that way. And in fact, the issue is a little more complicated than it might seem. Because in Hebrew, the phrase is 70 sevens. See, the word for week and the word for seven is the same word. So what the Bible actually says is 70 sevens are decreed. This is why some translations of the Bible, uh, if you're using NIV, for example, don't use, doesn't use the word weeks. It just says 70 Sevens. Daniel prayed for a conclusion to the 70 years of exile because he wanted God's people to be restored to God's place, to a right relationship with God. That's what was in his mind as he read Jeremiah. But God sent an answer to the prayer that wasn't about 70 years, but was about 70 sevens. Now, I would suggest that has symbolic significance. And I want to ask you to do something difficult. And that's to really, really concentrate with me for a few minutes as I try my best to explain what the 77s mean. Because what we should be asking is not how long do these 77s last? But rather... What do the 77s or the 70 weeks represent? Are you still with me? 
Okay. So however long these 77s last, the goal of that time period is very, very clear. And that is the six things listed in verse 24. You see that? So he's saying six things have got to be accomplished. That's the purpose, the goal. Here's what's going to happen. And it's going to happen over this 77s. And if you look at the third one of those reasons, it says to atone for iniquity. Now, everybody agrees, without a doubt, that that refers to Jesus' death on the cross. That Jesus came and atoned for iniquity. Christian, Jesus' death has covered your sin. Jesus' death has cleansed you. You are in your position in Christ today, as right with God as you will ever get. You are loved, you are freed, you are accepted, you are embraced forever. That is the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then understand that that phrase, quote, unquote, to atone for iniquity, is getting at the main message of the whole Bible. You see, people are sinners and God is holy. And so it's not as though here's God and we're just a slight bit less great. No, there's, there's God and there's, there's us. And yet we were made to know God. And so deep within the heart of every person who lives is the pursuit of someone or something, ultimately God. And yet that is a dead-end pursuit because in our own sin, we are helpless to know God. To be restored to a right relationship with Him, our sin must be atoned for. A simple way to think about what atonement means is covered over or cleansed. And so enter Jesus. Maybe you've heard of Him. Jesus entered this world, lived a life without sin, which meant he could die a death for sin, atoning for it, so that by his forgiveness we could be welcomed into a relationship with God. If you don't hear me say anything else today, non-Christian, hear the offer that's available to you from God. Your sin can be covered. Your separation from God can be over. Not by your great change in your own behavior and self-effort, but by casting yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. Now, I want to attempt to explain what those 77s represent because, everybody, they encapsulate, really, the whole stinking Bible. It is incredible what God's revealed to us here. And my hope would be that at the end of the next several minutes, your brain wouldn't feel like it exploded but you would be in awe of God and you would worship him for what he's compressed into one paragraph. See, the answer to Daniel's prayer that the Babylonian exile would be over, the answer to that prayer came from God and it's that the full scope of God's redemptive work would take way longer. It would take 70 sevens. So what's the deal with that cryptic reference? Well, today we're going to have drawing day. We're going to, I'm going to see if I can depict this on the screens, if we can get this to work. 
And I think we can because those in the back are, boom, are marvelous. All right. I don't know why it's on half. Do you, Tanya? A third? All right. We ready? Okay. Daniel describes a period of time from when the Jews would go back to Jerusalem to Jesus' first coming to Titus, the Roman general who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. It's never been rebuilt, by the way. There's a mosque there today where the temple was. And all the way to the return of Christ. That time period, so we know when it started, we don't know when it will end because Christ hasn't returned. That time period is the time period of 77. But what does that represent? That's what's so stunning about this passage. The Bible uses numbers at times literally, at times symbolically, and at times some combination of the two. And the most important number is the number seven. Now, can you think of the first time in the Bible we hear the number seven? Exactly. It is seven in the very beginning, Genesis chapter one and two. God created the world six days, and on the seventh day, he what? That's right. On the seventh day, God rested. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days to create, one day to regenerate. That's the pattern. Now, that pattern started in Genesis 1 and 2, God then commanded the Old Testament followers of Jesus to practice themselves. So for six days, they'd work, and one day, they'd rest and worship. What's that called? Sabbath, exactly. All right? Now, that pattern, six, rest on the seventh. Then, later in the law, in the book of Leviticus, gets repeated again. But further, God told the Jews that every seventh year, the land was to rest. So every seven, after seven, they were to allow the crop, after six, they were to allow the crops to not grow. That was called rest. That was another period of rest. And the scriptures called it a Sabbath year. So if you're interested in learning more about that, read Leviticus 25. So the pattern of six and rest in days, uh, in terms of a week, is then repeated six years and rest on the seventh. Incidentally, Leviticus 26 says that if the Jews failed to follow the commandments of God, if they didn't let the land rest, if they didn't let it lay fallow, then God would remove them from the land so the land would have its Sabbath. So what's the exile? The exile is God keeping the land in its rest and removing the people from their rest because they weren't following him. 
Now, that pattern gets repeated even more. And so, the, the 70 years of exile, what was that? Well, the number 10 in the Bible represents fullness or completeness. And so, it was 10 Sabbath years. God gave the land a perfect, complete rest before he brought the Israelites back. Now, this pattern gets repeated another time because here's where your brain's going to start to explode. Every seventh, seven. So every one of those. Every time there were seventh, there were seven of those. Seven Sabbath rests, they were to have an even bigger rest. This was called Jubilee. In the 50th year, the Jews were to supersize their rest. And in that 50th year, everything got put back right. All debts were forgiven. No crops would be grown for the entire year. If you were a slave, you were set free. If your land had been sold at some point because you had some debt you couldn't meet, then all land in the entire nation would go back to its original owner. It was a divine reset for the whole year. It was a beautiful big daddy of all rests. All right, you still with me? Okay, so now this is confusing. We haven't got to the confusing part yet. Those blocks, what did I do? There we go. These right here. So that's a group of seven, sevens, seven years. That's seven of the seven years, 49 years. Those in Leviticus 25 are called weeks. Let me read you this verse. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that at the time of the seven weeks of years, you shall have 49 years. Remember in the Jewish mind, seven and week mean the same thing. That's the basic block of time. And so, weeks, when a Jew would hear 77s, they're not thinking what we would think. They're not thinking a year and a half. They're thinking seven blocks of seven Sabbath, 70 blocks of seven Sabbath years. That's what Leviticus 25 would tell us. But remember, that the year of Jubilee would be this year you would long for, you would expect. It would be magnificent. It would be wonderful. Everyone wanted to experience one of those in their lifetime. Imagine a whole year party in which everything you've mucked up gets fixed. That's Jubilee. Now you're doing great. We're getting to the important part. Notice how Daniel 9 verse 24 starts. There will be 70 weeks. We'd expect it to say something about the 70 years of exile. 
because that's what Daniel was praying about. But no, instead the angel starts with 70 weeks. So what's meant by those weeks? Well, those weeks are seven Sabbath years. So seven weeks equals seven years. So 70, the text says, times seven years. Anybody good at math? That's 490 years. Now remember, this is apocalyptic writing. So all the YouTubers that tell you that is a precise dating from 490 years from whenever all this started. They're wrong. That's not how apocalyptic literature works. It doesn't matter how many likes or shares they have. That's not what it means. It can't mean that. Because we're way past 490 years. So something else has got to be going on here. Now remember what we said about the Sabbath years. We said seven of those equaled what? Jubilee. So what's 490? Ten Jubilees. Now why in the world is that important? Now here's the point. The angel told Daniel, you want to go back to Babylon, and you're going to go back. But God's got something far better up his sleeve. God is going to bring about, in his time frame, the ultimate jubilee. See, the number 10 represents fullness. Think of the Ten Commandments. God in Ten Commandments gives the full point of the other 600 and something. The, the, the 10 represent the whole. And so 10 jubilees represent an ultimate fulfillment of God's plan of restoration. Now for Daniel, what he heard was yet to come. He would see the first wave of this, the first quote-unquote week. But for us, what God promised is well underway. A whole lot of it's happened, but it's not yet finished. As we often say, the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. Sometime I'd love to talk you through everything that is discussed in that paragraph in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. But the big idea is that God has promised an ultimate, endless jubilee. A time period that will go on forever in which everything is set back right. We might put it this way. In response to Daniel's prayer for the restoration of God's people to God's place, God promised that in 77th he would not only restore, but would fully complete his plan of salvation. So church, what did Jesus Christ accomplish? If that's the heart of the prophecy, what did Jesus do? Well, in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. 
Jesus has ushered in the ultimate jubilee. In Jesus, all our spiritual debts are paid. All our needs are met. The Christian right now is liberated from shame, cleansed from sin, delivered from death, rescued from hell, placed in a position of eternal rest. That's why Hebrews chapter 4 describes our salvation as a Sabbath rest. The six days of work and one day of rest was never about hobbies. It was always pointing forward to the ultimate rest we have from our labors of trying to be made right with God. We can sit down in the grace of God today because we have already entered in our rest in Christ. And the church is the people of God enjoying the jubilee already given to us by God. This is why church should be a party. Jesus has atoned and covered our sin. We are right now righteous in Him, forgiven by Him, and enjoying Him. And yet, we do still await the return of Christ, the completion of that last, quote-unquote, week. Which brings us full circle. We started today by saying Daniel 9 runs along the same lines as Romans 8. What do I mean? You know what I mean. Today we groan. We groan for God to finish what he started. We groan for Jesus to come back and put an end to sin, sorrow, suffering, shame, forever. Beloved, if you are weary, why should you continue trusting God? If you have doubts that Christianity is true, why should you continue to believe? If God's timetable in no way matches your own, why should you submit to His and give up on yours? If you're suffering, why refuse to turn your back on God? If you're feeling dry and discouraged spiritually, why should you keep up the spiritual disciplines? Well, because in Daniel 9, 2,600 years ago, we were told that God's people would need to be patient while He completes His work of restoration on His timetable. Today, spiritually speaking, we already have all that we need in Christ. And one day, He will come and end our groaning. So while we groan, we don't groan without purpose or hope. We groan in confidence knowing our King will return. God will finish what He began. Jesus is coming soon. Until then, we're to wait with confidence. Now let me end with this. Back to that year of Jubilee. So every 50th year, the year would start on the 10th day of the 7th month. The way this stuff fits together is insane. On the 10th day of the seventh month, which marked the beginning of the year of Jubilee, they would begin it by blowing trumpets. The trumpets declared, we are entering Jubilee. First Thessalonians tells us, one day, 
another trumpet will sound as King Jesus returns. Church, let's help each other until that day. Because waiting is hard. But we have been given all that we need in Christ, and he's given us each other to walk this journey together. Father, this has been anything but a simple, easy sermon. Pray that you would be merciful to us, that you'd help us to understand Pray that the non-Christian in the room would be in awe of a God who could make things fit together like this. We pray for repentance and faith. Pray that the Christian here would be filled with hope and confidence. We don't know how long these 77s will last, but we know that we can wait it out because so much of what's in the text has already happened and what hasn't yet, you will give us the strength to endure. We pray we'd be a church who's in each other's lives enough to know where do we have a hard time waiting on God and that we would lift up each other's weak and frail faith until that trumpet sounds. In Jesus' name, amen.